0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C, a host of the channel. Today I'll be talking with my guest, Dr. James Pickett, about his new book, Polymaths of Islam, Power and Networks of Knowledge in Central Asia, published in 2020 by Cornell University Press. James Pickett is assistant professor in in the Department of History at the University of Pittsburgh, where he teaches Central Eurasian and Persianate history, as well as the history of Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union. He received his PhD from Princeton University in 2015. James, welcome to the show. Thanks
1: so much, Nick, for that kind introduction. Uh, it's a little, <laughs> in some ways, a little intimidating to be here. I've uh, been listening to the New Books Network podcast for so long, uh, to <laughs> finally to
0: be on it with talking about my own book. So thanks so much. Yeah, and we're really excited to have you. Um, and I really enjoyed this book. Um, but, you know, to kind of get into our discussion today, I wanted to start um, by asking you about your your motivation motivations for researching this topic. Um, how did you come to write a book about the kind of Persianate or a book about Persianate Islamic intellectuals in, in early modern Central Asia?
1: Sure. Yeah. And I have to, <laughs> I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm always quite jealous when I hear the answers that other guests of the show uh, offer because, you know, they always have such great stories or personal connections. And I don't really uh, have either of those things. Um, you know, I have no deep connection to the region before I started studying it. Um, but I did, I, I have been interested in uh, the history of Islam for quite a long time. Um, and it just so happens that I uh, went to a small liberal arts school uh, for my undergraduate called Carleton College, where Adib Khalid uh, is, you know, a, a scholar there and a teacher there. And I took his classes uh, and really fell in love with the, um, with the history of the region. So it was really happenstance that I think that pulled me down this road. Although I will say that for me, the kind of um, the gateway drug was the realization that a part of the Soviet Union, a you know, a communist state, was Muslim, uh, and, and you know, obviously that's that won't be news to anyone listening to this podcast. But when I was a freshman uh, in undergrad, uh, I found that just fascinating, and that uh, also that was through you know, Khalid's uh, classes. And that even though my research now primarily focuses on the the pre-Soviet period, um, that was what really sucked me in uh, to the study of Central Asia. Um, so so yeah so it's it's probably more happenstance than <laughs> than anything else. I should I could also add though just that um, out of college I became um, uh, involved in a um, blogging network called New Eurasia that was uh, trying to promote citizen journalism in the region. Um, and this if if I if there was any question that I was going to study Central Asia before that uh, that really solidified my interest because it uh, provided a way for me to visit the region, um, but also really get my, uh, you know, get some experience writing about it. So.
0: That's really fascinating. And, and, you know, you're really lucky and it's not surprising if you had um, a professor like Adib Khalid uh, teaching you about Central Asia, that you would kind of be inspired to continue on that path. Um, But I'm curious about, um, you know, you've kind of talked about your Um, interest in Central Asia overall, but how did you come to this uh, focus on on specifically the Persianate or the Persianate world? Um, Because in your book, it's it's a very specific um, focus that you have, and you have, it it seems like you have very strong ideas about um, how kind of uh, Persianate culture operated in in early modern Central Asia. So when did you start um, to delve more deeply into that subject matter?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I imagine we'll get more in, into the sort of specifics of what that term means and some of the different takes on it in a moment. But in terms of its relationship to, to why I got interested in uh, Persian um, culture and also in the ulama, it's, uh, fair, that's somewhat straightforward. Um, you know, I remember when I was doing sort of, uh, rec- uh, sort of the pre-dissertation research trip, um, I was spending most of my time in uh, post-Soviet Central Asia. But then I I went and did some some very brief uh, work in the archive in Kabul in Afghanistan to to see, just to assess what sort of materials might be there to work with. And, you know, there are more, you know, on paper, there are more Tajiks living in Afghanistan than in Tajikistan. And I had spent by that point quite a bit of time living and traveling and working in Central Asia. So I expected that the sort of the the cultural gulf, uh, you know, I'd find a lot of things in common. And of course, there are a lot of things in common, but I was more struck by um, how much changes when you cross that border uh, between post-Soviet Central Asia and, and the territories to the south. And the reason that interested me is because during the time period I studied, that wasn't the case. As in, you could travel that you know be across that, across the Amodaria River and much further, and the cultural world, particularly at the elite level, uh, was fully commensurable. And I just found that so, so interesting. I wanted to understand the world before the Soviet rupture, uh, to, to, and, and I was interested in those, uh, long-term and, and geographical continuities and the sort of Persianate studies. Um, and what we'll, what we'll you know, get into is the Cosmopolis was the, was the way that I made a sense of that phenomenon.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about this term Cosmopolis because, you know, as somebody who, um, is kind of delving um, into early modern Central Asia. It's not its not like my main area of focus. Um, you know, this was something new to me. Is that a term that you've come up with um, to describe your research? Or is this part of an existing literature and you're kind of building on it? Um, I guess, could you describe what you mean by uh, the Persianate Cosma, uh, Cosmopolis for uh, our listeners? And um, how does that help you understand what's happening um, in kind of, Intellectual circles in in early modern Central Asia.
1: Absolutely. Um, so that, I mean, the first thing is I definitely so both the term Persianate and cosmopolis are parts of existing literature that I'm building on, but I did not coin either of those things. And I'll, I'll I'll explain how what I'm doing fits into those scholarships. But let's back up for just one second. And you know, anytime you introduce words that in scholarship that people aren't nece- that re- even educated readers are not necessarily. Um, uh familiar with that you, you need to justify that and in this case i really do think that those categories uh in, are in a way practical solutions to practical to a practical problem and the, the the practical problem is this which is that you know when we're talking about the way that culture and religion and literature functioned in the pre-modern period you know anything before say the 20th century um, most of the categories that are our default categories that we that we turn to are Modern ones, which is to say, primarily national ones. So this is why you get so many debates about whether this or that, uh, you know, cultural artifact is really Uzbek or really Tajik, that sort of thing. What we, what people are doing are is applying these these national categories to a, a time period when they don't really have any, um, uh, you know, role to play. It's sort of like you know trying to fit a square peg into a, a round hole. So the the terms like Persianate and ideas like Persianate and cosmopolis. Help us get away from that and start looking at this, uh, this, this cultural uh, um, ecosystem on its own terms. And you might think, well, one way of getting away from that is just to use a, you know, a regional, a larger regional category like Central Asia. But Central Asia, you know, is a is a term that I use in the book, but it's a category of convenience. It's a it's a modern area studies category. It doesn't really have any um, organic basis uh, in the region's history itself. Um, so it's not really a solution to that problem either um so so what is the so what is the sort of the what this term cosmopolis is trying to capture part of it is that um pre-modern elite cultures were astonishingly uniform across both time and space um but again the the, the elite uh qualifier there is an important qualifier you know the, the, we're talking about a very narrow slice of the population yet it's we're, we're talking about a very you, know, you what, what i'm getting at is that you know um you know Culture produced in the medium of, say, Arabic or Persian, uh, you know, had a lot of continuity across many centuries and across a huge amount of territory. Another thing that uh, that the so and so the the person who coined the term Cosmopolis uh, was a scholar named Sheldon Pollock, and he was actually formulating it in relation to Sanskrit. But the model works very well uh, in many different cultural contexts. Another scholar named Alexander Beecroft has done a great job of sort of extrapolating on that model and and showing how it applies in many, many different uh, parts of world history. Um, But another uh, thing that uh, another um, purpose that these conceptual tools serve is to help us think about the relation, the relationship between different language, cultural formations, Um, namely the fact that they are nested. So, for instance, uh, Persian uh, high culture, uh, so Persian language literature, that sort of thing, it borrows a lot. You, know, you, you can't overstate how much it borrows from Arabic, right? It's assuming uh, the Arabic uh, curriculum, literature, um, it's been borrowing words from it uh, and so forth. Um, and then Turkic borrows tremendously from Persian, uh, even though, uh, and thereby borrowing it borrows from Arabic. So these these languages and litur- literary complexes are kind of nested within one another. Um, so that's so that's a when we're thinking when that's a, it's a very big picture way of looking at it. But when we when I get into some of the different um, questions more specific to nineteenth century Central Asia that my book's trying to to answer, I turn to that model a lot to explain. For Instance, why it is that a scholar could say move from Bukhara to a place like Kabul or Balkh and and you know not miss a beat and have it have his uh his um uh his or her uh um skill set and forms of knowledge fully um commensurable and transferable,
0: yeah. And I think we'll we'll get to that below. Um, I wanted to kind of tease out something that you said earlier in your answer, you were talking about kind of the way that um. I don't know if we want to call it like national identities and national historiographies um, or kind of history seen through a national lens in Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, especially kind of shaped the way that, that history of the 19th century um, has been written. Um, could you talk about that a little bit more? I mean, is the, how, how does this relate to the kind of standard division we see in Central Asian history of, Sedentary, sedentary populations versus nomadic populations or turk versus tajik um are in 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 more specifically like how does how does your work disrupt that or or maybe not disrupt but but move a little bit beyond that great that's
1: a great yeah that's a great way to put some more specificity on on how this model relates to central asian history um so first the first of all you know the the a um a paradigm very common in Central Asian studies, you know, nomadic versus sedentary. I fully embrace that; that that works very well. I think the problems start when you uh, when you try to map that specifically to identity. So you say, "Oh, well, the the nomads are Turks, and the and the um, and the sedentary people are Tajiks." It's much messier than that. And so, you know, the, so when um, so for instance, you imagine someone coming from a Turkic nomadic background; they come to um, so they probably speak some dialect of Turkic. It could be you know, something close to modern Uzbek. It could be something close to modern Kazakh. It could be something you know in between, something else entirely. So then they come to Bukhara, and what do they do? They they first they need to learn. So the the madrasa lessons are taught in Persian. So first they have to uh, learn Persian as a way of accessing an, yet another uh, curriculum. So you know, again, these are if we're thinking in terms of identity. You know, you might there's an argument to, to be made that they're some kind of Turk. I guess uh, you know they're speaking Turk. Turkish uh, like a, a, some dialect of Turkic at home but then they're engaged their, their first step is to learn some kind of Persian uh, uh, literary Persian uh, as a means of accessing a predominantly Arabic curriculum uh, in the madrasa. Um, so you know they're in- they're, in- they're engaging all three uh, different kinds uh, of nested uh, high cultural formations um, you know Arabic, Via Persian, maybe via Turkic. I mean, they're talking to each other. They're, they're they have study guides in, in in Turkic. They're getting tips from their classmates. So it's really hard to you know what is that? I mean, I, I don't you know, I, I don't think it's a if you're if you're asking what is that in terms of is that really uh, a Turkic identity? Really a Uzbek identity? Those questions just don't you know they don't make sense in a way that the sources can really answer. Uh, but I do think that thinking in terms of how they're Engaging uh, the cosmopolis uh, is much more useful. Um, so you know they're they're engaging the uh, um, Persian cosmopolis uh, and thereby tapping into the the Arabic Islamic uh, um, cultural formation, which per, the Persian assumes uh, and takes for granted and, and, and incorporates. I guess uh, you know the, to answer like the, one of the ways that I, so again these these concepts are ones that I'm building on. But I'd say that um, my work intervenes in them in maybe maybe three sort of specific ways, which relate to what you're, you just asked. Um, one is that you know I don't think of the the Persianate uh, as a kind of identity. Uh, I, I think of it you know as in in a way. If you think of identity as something that pe- that people are self consciously identifying as, it's a it's a modern term invented in the last twenty years, thirty years. So you know how c- could it be? People are not thinking of them of themselves as Persianate, obviously. Um, so we're think, i'm thinking about it more as in terms of a curriculum as a, a canon of literature that people are engaging and that literature and those that writing shapes their worldview shapes the way they, they understand the world but it's not at least in a narrow a narrow definition i don't really think of that as an identity um, the second thing is you know the, the term Persianate is not always so I, i'm making an argument for it to, that we ought to consider it as sort of a subset of, of, of Islamic, something that assumed that that was that was permeated with Islamic terminology uh, and concepts that were drawn from directly from Arabic literature, uh, and therefore uh, and then we should that, and that's the way to think of it, um, which is not the way it's always used. Uh, other people have you know will use the term Persianate uh, um, as something that's you know maybe like sometimes even a secular layer on top of Islamic. Um, so I think it's, but for my purposes, it's important to to consider the way that um, that Persianate high culture. Assumed uh, and took for granted uh, that Arabic, you know, in the case of Bukhara, that, that very palpable Arabic curriculum that's undergirding and informing the Persianate layer on top of it. The same way Turkic, which was Turkic as a as a especially written Turkic was not as common in, in Bukhara as it was elsewhere, but when it was, but it existed there as well, and it was layered on top of the Persianate, which was layered on top of the Islamic. The third thing, you know, and the reason this is that this is useful for my work, is just, you know, occasionally um, because it's uh, because per, uh, Persian studies have often been connected with literature uh, and studies of literature. I think it's, you know, I, I emphasize in my work that we have to remember that um, being the social group, i.e., the, the ulama, who speak for this high this high cultural uh, corpus, this canon, and 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 um, can authoritatively write new, uh, make entries into it, can interpret it. That carries with it tremendous power. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's you're describing how kings ought to behave. You're describing describing who is properly Muslim or not. Um, so the, their undisputed status as the interpreters of Islam, but also this uh, this, this cultural milieu of, of this Persian cultural milieu, which were intertwined. That is a big part of what made the ulama such a powerful social group.
0: Yeah, and I want to dive um more more closely into um Bukhara and and you know which plays a central role in your book as kind of um one of I don't know one of many um, Persianate kind of centers. So this is a center of Islamic learning. Um, but what I really liked about the book is is that we actually can trace the origins of Bukhara coming you know Bukhara Sharif. I think you mentioned mm-hmm. like the Bukhara the magnificent or. Um, um, and, and you kind of um, well, you know, standing from 2020 it, or 2021, um, it seems that uh, Bukhara has always been this kind of magnificent place. And, and you know, its its splendor is, is sort of uh, timeless in a way. You know, that's that's even if you watch um, Central Asian films from the 20th century, you kind of see this. But um, what you seek to do is, is kind of actually trace the origins of Bukhara as kind of this special place for um, Islamic learning. Um, and to do that, you you also kind of set the chronology of your book, which is um, within some, you know, you, you use this phrase, the long 19th century. Mm-hmm. So can you tell the listeners a little bit, um, what do you mean by long 19th century? And why is Bukhara over Balkh, which you also mentioned, or some of these other centers of Islamic learning, um, so important? What does it tell us about? Um, some of the questions you're seeking to answer.
1: Great. So I'll, I'll um, take so Bukhara in relation to periodization. Um, so you know the, the sometimes I uh, the, not only do I call it the long 19th century, kind of half jokingly, I refer to it as the even longer 19th century, uh, stretching from Nader Shah's conquest in the middle of the 18th century up until uh, the the Bolshevik conquest of Bukhara in 1920. Um, And so it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it is making uh, that periodization is doing something also serious, uh, which is one thing is that it's not using um, it's repurposing something, you know, a term specific to European history using non-European boundaries. Uh, So it's trying to disrupt that. But with the purpose that, you know, very common in um, a very common chronology, a very common periodization is thinking about the pre-colonial versus the colonial periods uh, in scholarship. Which is fine, you know, For some questions, that's fine. Uh, but you know, I wanted to look at it a little differently and sort of uh, try and transcend that divide. So part of the what I'm doing with the with the long 19th century, you know, the even longer 19th century, is using it as a periodization uh, to get beyond the the pre uh, the colonial pre colonial um, thing. You know, I'm not uh, necessarily promoting it as something that everyone should use. You know, there's the different you know different periodizations work dif- work well for different you know research questions, but for what I'm doing, I do think that this uh, you know it, it it makes a certain kind of sense. Um, so for instance, if you're you know Nader Shah's con- uh, con- So Nader Shah was a uh, a conquer. You know uh, an Iranian conqueror uh, that you know essentially uh, his conquest reset the political landscape. You know over wide swaths of Persian and Eurasia, not just in Bukhara. You know he broke the back of the Mughal Empire, uh, new dynasties in Iran, uh, the, D- the Durrani dynasty of Afghanistan, and the Mangat dynasty of Bukhara both owe their origins to um, service in Nader Shah's military empire. Um, and then also, and, and so that's on the one that's a, as a, you know, as one possible, uh, beginning to this period. And then in, in the, as I explained in the epilogue of the book, um, for the Madrasa elite culture that this book is looking at, I do think the Soviet period does mark a hard rupture for this kind of Islamic culture, not for all kinds of Islam, uh, as many other scholars have very aptly shown, uh, you know, the, the um, Islam survives in all sorts of ways during the Soviet period, both officially and unofficially. But for this world of uh, of the ulama, at least in the way that I talk about them, um, you know, their their time is very limited once the Soviet period starts. So that's the work. It's that's the work that the periodization is doing, for my work. And just a quick, so, like you know, one last note on periodization. You know, um, I do think that uh, in some ways I see. This work fitting in to the early modern period in a very serious way, even though even though it goes into the nineteenth and even twentieth uh, century, um, we we can trace and then for the, some of the reasons I was describing related to the use of this wor- uh, this term cosmopolis, the Persian cosmopolis. One of the comments I made was that it's very enduring, both in space but also in time, and so the uh, ulama that I'm studying are engaging with uh, an enduring tradition that goes back you know hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Okay, so then the second part of your question was about, uh, uh, you know, Bukhara specifically and how that how Bukhara as a place fits into this periodization. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. And, and um, you know, why? Also, why specifically Bukhara? Because as you mentioned, um, there are other kind of Persianate centers. I mean, presumably, you could have written a book about Balkh or something like that. And would you have come up with a similar story, you think? Or is there something unique about Bukhara? Okay, great. I see. Yeah, no, so um, Bukhara,
1: uh, you know, so this is, this is really gets the the sort of argument in chapters two and three, which is, you know, the story of how Bukhara um, in a way reached its cultural religious zenith uh, during this particular time period, uh, the early modern period as a whole, but also especially the, the long 19th century, um, which is to say, you know, th- so on the one hand, I am kind of um, Deconstructing a little bit the the claim that you'll hear even today, in some ways most of all today, about Bukhara's timelessness, you know, the, the idea that it has always been a pinnacle, you know, an Islamic center in the region, uh, and from the early Islamic period uh, and even the late Sogdian period and the pre-Islamic period, you know, Bukhara is an important cultural center, but there were ebbs and flows to that. Um, specifically, you know, at different points in time. You can talk about, as you mentioned, Balkh, but also especially Samarkand, uh, especially in the Timurid period, um, is eclipsing Bukhara, right? So if you, um, you know, if you're living in, say, the the, the 15th century, you, you, Bukhara would be an important city. You know, it would be a very important uh, scholarly dynasties that other scholars have sort of traced the traced the um, the fates of. Um, but if it was it's at the very least, places like Samarkand were peer competitors. But in the early modern period, when the capital of the Shibanid dynasty shifts over to Bukhara, um, and you have a tremendous investment in uh, the infrastructure of the city, by the time we get to the time period I'm looking at, um, Bukhara really is the uncontested uh, center of the region uh, in in terms of cultural, uh, political, uh, and for my purposes, religious and cultural life. Um, It's uh, serving as a magnet that's pulling in scholars to study there, from far beyond the political boundaries of the city-state itself, uh, so Muslims are coming in the thousands from the Volga urals in Russia, from India, from uh, what is now Western China, um, and so there's a history to this. There, there's a um, the the long 19th century building on the you know the the infrastructure and the and the, and the cultural development in the early modern period. Is when Bukhara really achieves this status as a peerless, a peerless center of um, of Islam and Persian and high culture, uh, um, and, that, and, and, and in a way that overshadows um, neighbor, still neighboring cities that were still really uh, you know important centers in their own right, like like Kashgar and Samarkand and Balk and places like that. Um, but still, it had it had a, an outsized um, allure compared to those other places in this period. Maybe not in earlier centuries.
0: Yeah and you know what's what's really interesting to that um about about that point is that it also kind of um reminds us that that these especially the Afghan border is so incredibly recent. You know I was um somewhat anecdotally I was at a conference once talking to some Afghan students about um you know a paper that I was writing about Bukhara and kind of cultural representation of Bukhara and they said you know there was this long tradition of lamenting the loss of Bukhara uh, to the Soviets in in 1920, and um, that kind of shocked me a little bit. Um, but you know, now that I'm reading your book and and kind of thinking about the longer place of Bukhara in the region, um, that shouldn't be so surprising. So I think you know that's really interesting to see how kind of that plays out over time. Um, but I want to, I want to shift the the focus of our conversation a little bit and kind of get into the the meat of the book and and kind of. The sources that you're relying on. So, you know, there's a huge focus on kind of this intellectual elite, the ulama, um, you know, in your book and, and you're kind of looking at how they've changed and transformed over the long 19th century, but also how, how the kind of, um, literary and, and educational institutions that they're operating in are, are remarkably persistent, even through, um, you know, the period of Russian, uh, colonialism. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the group that you studied and and what kind of sources you're using um, to to get at their stories and and, how, and explore how this kind of intellectual tradition operated
1: Yeah so I mean to back up just even a step I mean so ulama is a, an Arabic term that means uh, those who literally those who who know those who are knowledgeable um, it's a term uh, that you'll find in, in a study of Islam in almost any Almost any time period in any part of the world. So it's a, in some sense, it's an enduring social group. Where, you know, it's, it's uh, you can see the, you you can find uh, you know tongue in cheek uh, ulamologies uh, for for most um, periods of in, periods of Islamic history in most places. Um, but what they were changed a lot uh, over time. Um, and so you know the one of the arguments that the the book makes is that you know the the. What one individual, you know, as as we follow Islamic history more generally, where we have these uh, um, many uh, increasing uh, many more forms of knowledge uh, brought into the fold as uncontroversial um, part of the uh, um, planks of the canon that any educated person should know. Ulama became even more and more polymathic. Uh, they, they they became more and more di- the, the the sorts of things that they, that an average um, scholar would would learn. What became more and more, di- more diverse. And so by the 19th century, that that you know that that's kind of come um, reaches zenith in some ways. Um, so the, the, you know again the the idea of ulama is enduring, but uh, you know what they actually were, who they were, uh, changes quite a bit. You know the the and so the and I can say more about that. But you, you were also asking about sources, um, and so you know it's. Uh, and I think that one of the first things that, that um, you know there's a connection between the fa- what the the fact that I just mentioned that you can find ulamologies of so many different societies and the question of sources. Um, the ulama are the learned elite. They are scholars. They are literate, and they write about themselves a lot. Uh, and Central Asia is no no exception. Um, so we, we tend to you know in many different societies we tend to have a lot of sources that uh, are produced by the ulama about the ulama. Um, that said, uh, the nature of those sources are, are very, very different. mean I, there, I do make a, a, a um, an argument in the book for reading across j- different kinds of different genres of sources, so that we don't end up unintentionally um, just reproducing and describing the genre itself rather than getting at the underlying phenomena.
0: Yeah, and let's. Um... Let's talk a little bit about um, the kind of knowledge, um, you know, or the, the very specific forms of knowledge that these uh, ulama um, kind of master um, in the time that you're looking at. Because, you know, like the title of the book reflects um, what you're pointing out is, is, is that they they do kind of reach kind of a very elite level of, of being able to, um, you know, operate in medicine, astronomy various sciences, um, even the occult. Um, so, so what's the main point here? Um, is, is this, are you bringing something new, uh, to the conversation by pointing out, um, you know, just how, um, how they managed to, to master these various, uh, areas of knowledge?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, here's the, here's the, in in a way, this is the big intervention that I want to make. Um, and this is even in the, you know, in a way, this is why I chose this title for the book, Polymaths of Islam. Um, Okay. So if you look at a lot, you know, particularly the, particularly earlier scholarship, but really um, any kind of scholarship, like the, the ulama is a lot of the time synonymous with the jurist specifically, right? Like these, so these are, you know, in the colonial literature, they come across as sort of fanatical mullahs, but even in uh, modern scholarship, you know, the the ulama are the masters of Islamic law. A a lot of the time It's the persona that they adopt. Um, and so okay so the ulama is one so now I'm now I'm sort of uh, repeating the the received wisdom here, not my argument. So the ulama if we say that they're sort of synonymous with the, the jurists with the the legal specialists, then who else is there Well there's the Sufis and then there's the poets and then there's you know the occultists like you mentioned there's the the, the specialists in medicine, the physicians right and these are all different uh, social groups that's how it's usually seen and sometimes they, are even opposed to one another. So you know you have the ulama as the austere, sort of no nonsense, uh, you know, buzzkill jurists. and then you have the Sufis as the as the you know more um, cosmopolitan alternative to them or something like that. And so one of the by by saying by the refer, by th- rethinking these figures as polymaths of Islam, I'm asking that we we reconsider that entirely, and instead of thinking in terms of um, social groups. We should think about them as one integrated social group. And then we should think about different forms of knowledge and different social roles that are performed by, by those same group of people in different social circumstances. Um, so, you know, a big, one of the most enduring um, binaries in the literature is sort of ulama versus Sufis. These are different groups. I'm sure, I'm, I imagine most people will have seen that um, in, you know, articulated in the literature somewhere. Um, but in fact, you know, I you, it's difficult to find any uh ulama at all who weren't uh you know by one you know sufism itself is a very difficult you know it has a lot of different def- definitions but by one definition or another all of the ulama were uh practicing some kind of sufism which again is all this is a point i make in more detail in the book but that's that sufism means a lot of different things but by one or another definition uh they're all practicing sufism and similarly most people that we think of sufis i mean they 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 not only do they have a madrasa education under their belt, you know, and therefore becoming themselves knowledgeable, which is the definition of ulama, they're usually uh, using that um, madrasa education as a way, as a platform for pursuing Sufi disciplines as a kind of postgraduate uh, kind of uh, form of education. Um, so, you know, the, so I think I consider this a, you know, a, a fairly significant conceptual intervention, like to really move away from thinking about these different um, uh these different social roles, these different uh, forms of knowledge, which, by the way, correspond to genres, which is another reason I'm interested, which relates to my previous point. But instead, again, thinking about how it could be that because that um, an individual scholar could perform perf- personas that seem to us so different in hindsight, in different contexts, you know, so uh, you know, working in a, and this was very common. You know, working in a, sh- a Sharia court uh, in the morning, and then heading over to the Sufi lodge to preside over it as a sheikh in the evening. Uh, this is very, very uh, where you might also practice the occult sciences and write Persian poetry. So that so this is very much an
0: integrated milieu in that way. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about both both Sufi learning and and the occult. Um, you know, because in in the book and you you write, and I quote: "By the early modern period, the lines between scholar and mystic had." had begun to blur um, and you say that most intellectuals uh, were a bit of both um, what what defines the occult um, I mean w- when you're reading these sources um, are they referring to it as the occult or is is that kind of a modern label that we're putting on a certain set of practices because that was kind of a question I had was like okay well if they they are um, kind of engaging with the occult Maybe they didn't recognize it as such. All right. That's it. So um, in this case, so with
1: it, um, with it, in the case of the occult, uh, we are actually in a somewhat fortunate position in that there's an emic or a sort of um, a, a, like a, a term in the tradition itself that corresponds pretty well uh, to, to what we usually mean by um, the occult. So ulume uh, which is like, uh, yeah. So that, that, that's usually what, when I use the word occult, following, following scholars like Matt Melvin Kushki who's doing pioneering work on, uh, Islamic occult sciences. Uh, that's usually the, the that, that maps pretty well to that term. I mean, within ulum al-Gharib, like, so within, uh, the occult science, what we would call the occult sciences, there's lots of specific disciplines, uh, that were, that were some, were variously grouped under that, that heading. Um, but you know, the, but, uh, you know, and it, I want to emphasize that these were understood as Islamic disciplines, right? So there, there was nothing, um, you know, this wasn't something that the, the, the occult sciences were not something that the ulama practiced, practiced on the side and were embarrassed of. You know, the, they were sometimes criticized, but then that's true of a lot of other disciplines of Islamic learning as well. I mean, there, 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 were all, there were debates within the field, but they weren't seen as something, you know, outside of the Islamic fold. That's something that no respectable, would, uh, or no respectable scholar would actually do. Uh, and so, they, you know, again, they were uh, the occults. So the various occult sciences were uh, elite, as in, you know, the, not the, unlike some of the other disciplines. It was not something that necessarily everyone would have done, but it was very common. And, and they they appear when they appear in the sources, they're not as not uh, in hushed whispers as something to be embarrassed of. They're valorized. They're they're it's it's a a mark of a of ex, of, a, of specialized erudition. Um, you know, that, that, just a quick—you know—there are kinds of uh, sorcery that uh, that have that are not understood in that way that were considered outside the fold, but they don't get mentioned in um, in these sources as much.
0: And can you provide? Um, I don't know. I, th- I thought this was a really interesting part of the book, and not something that I typically encounter. So I was wondering if you could like um, describe some of these practices um, which which you do in the book in detail. Um, Oh sure, yeah. Um,
1: so you know the, the the one of the so one of the points that I make in the so what one of the ways that I came to be interested in this is you know I mean I, I I've one of the source types of sources that I'm especially interested in are this would be a kind of a roundabout way to answer that question but um, there's these ma- these uh, practical manuals called Jung and what they are is they're kind of just uh, um, notebooks of miscellany so like they're they're um, they have all it's where the, the, When I make this argument about the multi the the eclecticism of the ulama i'm doing that based on a number of different kinds of sources but the the jung are a great example of where it all comes together so that you can imagine these as a quick notebook that um you know a scholar would take around with them and just record anything that's useful uh in their different situations so you know and and so like so you can see for an individual within an individual scholar's notebook you can see all of the different uh you know the whole constellation of forms of different forms of islamic learning coming into one place. Uh, So, you know, they'll have notes, they'll have, um, you know, notes about uh, uh, common uh, uh, um, answers to questions uh, in Islamic jurisprudence that they'll use as a model for fatwas and and, uh, and legal rulings. They'll have Persian poetry written into the margins. They'll have Sufi litanies. They'll have, you know, I think even things like recipes and that kind of thing. But also, so when I was doing my research, I also started noticing noticing strange symbols uh, in the margins of these things. You know, dots connected by lines and that sort of thing, or or numbers just uh, written in, in strange um, uh, patterns. And what I and what I eventually realized was that these were um, occult, uh, usually um, some kind of divination. So there's various different ways of doing it. There's different uh, sub. Uh, you know, there's different disciplines within occultism in Islam. Um, but some, but a lot of them involve uh, using letters or numbers or geometric forms geomancy to predict the future. Uh, in addition to ones that people are probably more familiar with, like uh, astrology and that kind of thing. Um, but these appear in the in the in the manuals uh, that are you know primarily dedicated to things like law or medicine, right? So um, so that's the main that's one of the main functions that uh, that people are are using this material to do a lot of it has to do with predicting the future or influencing the future to a
0: degree. Yeah, thank you. Um and just while we're still on this uh conversation you mentioned a little you mentioned earlier that um part of what you're trying to do um with this focus on on these various uh areas of knowledge is kind of pre- present I would I would say like almost a more um sympathetic uh view of, of the ulama. Um, you know, especially because I think like you've mentioned, um, kind of Jadidist so Muslim reformist, um, and, and both in kind of Russian uh views of the ulama have kind of shaped the way that um both uh Russian, Uzbek, you know, Central Asian scholars and also scholars in the West have have traditionally talked about them. You you mentioned kind of uh the idea of like the fanatic judge. Um, and so it seems to me that w- what you are trying to do is, is present a more sympathetic view, um, but also to show that, that perhaps we really truly don't understand um, the ways that these these ulema operate within society. Um, and, and to do so, you kind of talk about um, some of the, the tensions and controversies um, in their practices, you know, we've talked about the occult practices, but you also talk about the use of um, opium and, and wine um, as a way of, of challenging our, our kind of presentist, presentist uh, views of the ulama. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, um, I don't know what what what's the bigger takeaway here for early modern Central Asia? Um, does it help us understand? Um, any of the big, uh, what are the bigger questions that we can answer um, by looking at at this specific group? And I guess what I'm also asking is, um, how does it, re- how do the ilama relate to other um, kind of elite groups at at the time that you're looking at? Got
1: it. Um, so. Yeah, you might have to remind the, 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 remind me of some of the different parts of that question, but I'll take the first one, which is sort of about whether I'm trying to revise this into into a more sympathetic view of of the ulama. And you know, like I, my my answer might not be what what you'd necessarily expect on that question, which is just to say that you're right. If we're coming from sort of earlier scholarship that's uh, you know taking colonial and jadid sources more at face value to pay, to sort of to vilify the ulama who were there. You know who were their enemies? Then, then sure, yeah, I'm. Def- I definitely think that needs to be revised towards a more sympathetic view. Um, you know the, but the. I also it, the the word polymath often has a you know a very. I, I mean it in a fairly literal way. It just isn't people who have mastered a lot of different forms of knowledge. But it also has a. I, th- I acknowledge it has a fair fairly positive ring to it. Um, and I wouldn't. You know. I don't necessarily, like I, what I do, sometimes in some parts of the literature, you, I, I think that uh, the, the ulama can be come across, it can be celebrated in a way that I, I don't intend in this book. As Sometimes even as the sort of heroic, um, you know, indig, you know local, indigenous uh, resistors of colonialism. I, I really don't see it that way. Um, in the sense that we just have to remember that um, these are really, really powerful individuals. Uh, they, they have tremendous power over other people's lives. And there were, you know, a lot of people below them. Uh, so I, you know, I see. I, I, so if, if you're coming from a, a celebratory perspective, then then I maybe would want to sort of moderate it the other direction. But you're right. If you're coming from especially earlier scholarship and, and Central Asian studies, then then then, yeah, I'd, I'd, I would probably want to um, reassess the how we evaluate them. Um Okay, so that, what was the what was the next part of your question?
0: Yeah, yeah. Let me <laughs> um, restate the question. No, I was um, I was trying to do too much at once. Um, so in in the last in, in the later chapters of the book, um, you kind of look at 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 so sorry in the middle chapters, you're kind of looking specifically at the ulama and the kind of knowledge they're using, and then at the later in the later chapters, you kind of trace specific families of scholars and try to understand um, kind of how the ulama as a class of people or not class, but as a group of of people in in society relate to um, rulers um, and and how they kind of like um, support um, political dynasties. Um, And and one point that you make is that they kind of emerge during moments of political crisis, but then come to, I mean, If we're looking at at how long these scholarly families actually continue to operate and and maintain their position, um, it's pretty impressive. So why is this happening? And and specifically, what about their knowledge set or what about their position in society makes them so um, useful uh, to these political dynasties like the Magdids? Got it, got it.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, for for my work, I, so the, in the questions I'm asking, I do find it useful to think about a kind of two pronged uh, uh, elite uh, class in in central in Central Asia. So on the one hand, you have the subject, the main subject of my book, the the Islamic scholars or the ulama. On the other hand, you have the Turkic nobility, and of course, there's lots of other power holders. And as I as I myself emphasize. These two groups, uh, you know, the lines between them blur all of the time, especially in one in one direction, which is to say, um, you know, if you think about uh, the Turkic nobility uh, as um, a group on uh, their, their authority rests on their lineage and also uh, their mar- at least a memory of their martial abilities. Right. This is, these are things you can celebrate openly. There, there uh, is a claim to authority that is explicit. And then you also have the claim to authority of the ulama, which is based on the knowledge, right, on scholarship. Um, now, of course, you can if you're a mem- member of the Turkic nobility, um, like for instance the Mangits, but also many other tribes, uh, Uzbek or otherwise. Um, you can train your. And they did this all of the time. You can uh, you can style you, you can um, you know style yourself as an ulama. You can tra- learn those forms of knowledge and also become an ulama. A member of the ulama, which doesn't necessarily undermine your other, you know, independent claim to authority based on lineage uh, and memory of martial prowess. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that you can't go the other way. So, like, if you're an Islamic scholar, you know, you, no amount of training is going to make you get you acknowledged as a is going to um, enable you to claim that other independent kind of authority. So, even though I study the ulama, I talk about the Turkic. Nobility a lot because these these two groups are intimately intertwined. Specifically, um, you know, as you as you were just asking, um, the Turkic nobility rely on the ulama uh, to justify their you know positions as rulers and also to run the government in all sorts of ways. Um, So there's a reason that the Turkic elite are investing so many resources and building up the, um, the institutions like the madrasas that produce this class of scholars. So even though, again, they're, they the, the, the core logic of their claims to authority are distinct and independent. Um, they're intimately, you know, the, 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 one relies on the other in both directions. So we have this, you know, this, a lot long, this enduring alliance, alliance between these two social groups. Now, um, when we have moments of um, disruption uh, and this is you know, in a way this this uh, relates directly to the how I periodized the book right when you have these these moments of of disruption sort the, the you know some kind of insurrection the, you know a conquest the formation of a new dynasty um, you often see new families so new families of ulama, Establishing themselves in alliance with the the incoming Turkic dynasty, and this makes a you know a kind of a kind of intuitive sense, right? Like so that you know the the previous dynasty um, had been patronizing specific families of ulama, uh, and so a new ones coming in with new, a new Turkic uh, dynasty is coming in with new claims, right? So they oftentimes they bring in that uh, they start patronizing different dynasties of ulama who are then able to entrench themselves and protect perpetuate their line. Uh, and so, you know, one of the examples in the book is this—you know, this uh, there's a there's a specific dynasty that gets established, um, in, 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 whose, whose origins are wound up in Nadir Shah Afshar's conquest of Central Asia, and I can trace that lineage all the way through to the to the, to the Bolshevik conquest in 1920. Uh, so they have some real staying power over centuries. And again, this is not. Not unique in Islamic history. Um, this has been a well-established. You know, there's lots of inter- like interesting counter- uh, uh, parallel examples of long longstanding dynasties of scholars. But it's interesting the way that these moments of disruption enable a sort of a reset and and and, and, and it really puts the the relationship of the ulama and the Turkic nobility into relief. And in these when you see them being established in real time in the sources.
0: And I think that's a good this is a good time to kind of switch switch to the one of the last points you make in the book, which is about, um, kind of, yeah. I mean, we've talked about the persistence of these groups, but, um, you end to conclude the, the title of the conclusion is united in eclecticism. Um, what do you mean by this term? And, you know, it, it's, it seems like you're, you're indicating that there's kind of like the ulema are the strongest, um, right before they're kind of swept away by the Bolshevik revolution. Um, And I think you're also trying to say something about um, just kind of the uniformity of this culture. Um, You know, you've alluded to the fact that they could, that these ulama could kind of bounce around uh, different cities um, and, and, and very easily fit into, um, you know, the, the structure of the of intellectual life in those various cities. So, um, could you just elaborate a little bit on that point? And what do you mean by the the title of this conclusion?
1: Right. So, the, the you know the united in, in eclecticism was sort of a pithy way of um, of getting at this idea that um, they, that we are looking at one common social group, but but every but most of the people most of the individuals within that social group. Are very eclectic in the forms of knowledge that they uh, master. Um, you know whether they're the strongest they've ever been. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I would necessarily say that. But what I am what I am sort of getting at is that over the long run of Islamic history, you kind of have a sedimentary sedimentary process where new forms. You, you know, if you go back to the very beginning, you have hadith. Uh, Right. And then uh, fit another kind of another very early within the first several centuries of Islam. You have these early forms of knowledge getting uh, um, canonized into the into the into the curriculum of what a a learned person should know. But as we all know from Islamic history, more and more things get added into that into that mix as time goes on. So, you know, that when I when I so, you know, for instance, we have. Notably, the Persian, the Persian canon, right, of, of poetry and, other, and Sufi writing and other, other forms of knowledge that are in the Persian medium. And I would also include, you know, Turkic, like less so in Bukhara, but uh, in other places in Central Asia, um, you also have uh, the Turkic vernacular culture being added into this uh, to this um, e- uh, ecosystem of what a, a scholar should know. Which is to say, you know, when I say that they're more eclectic than ever before in the long nineteenth century, it's not because they're, you know, uh, better scholars necessarily or anything like that. It's just that they're sitting on the, they're 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 standing on the um, on an edifice that has been built up built up for over a millennium. Um, so that so that's the so so that's why I find remarkable about the ulama in this time period uh, is the, sh- the sheer breadth of of what a, a, an educated individual is is often knows. Um, now to the the question of uh, the where part of that how you know why was this edifice so remarkable uh, remarkably wide in breadth and geographical breadth um, you know one of the arguments I, I make earlier on the book is that you know I do you do you can I, I try and trace contours of that as in you know even though the, the, the broad emphasis I'm making is 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 that this skill set and this, these forms of knowledge. Were transferable. They weren't equally transferable everywhere. Uh, different pieces of it were different in different places. You know, an, like an example would just be, say, Qajar Iran. So when people hear the word Persian, it of course they want to um, like Iran comes to mind for better or for worse. And actually, like there wasn't, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, you know Iranian scholars showing up in the Bukharan madrasas. And the reason is, you know, at least the, as I argue, the reason is because parts of what they parts of the curriculum in Qajar, Iran that would have been transferable, they exist, you know, so they, they like the the, the the poetical canon, for instance, but other parts don't. I mean the, the, the Shia uh, the Sunni Shia split matters in, in the sense that, you know, they're learning Hanafi law in Bukhara, which is you can't go and make as, you can't use that as an employable skill in Iran, for instance. Um, so you can trace contours, but many parts of that uh, common curriculum, that common intellectual edifice, uh, uh, allow these scholars to to move to to move beyond Bukhara, which is one of the reasons that that um, that Bukhara's edu- educational infrastructure was so much grander than the actual political boundaries of the city.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, and I think that that might be a good place to um, stop our discussion. Of course, um, for the listeners, um, if, if you are interested in learning more, I would encourage you to uh, pick up James's book, um, Polymaths of Islam. Um, and James, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. But um, before we say goodbye, I was curious if, if you're working on any current projects, or if you have any future projects in mind that you'd like to share with us.
1: Yeah, um, so I'm currently working on a uh, study of what it meant to be a protectorate um, in the Russian Empire, but also looking at um, uh, indirect rule and sort of uh, semi-colonialism in in India as well as a as a comparison with Bukhara. Um, You know, one of the, um, as I mentioned earlier in the in this interview, one of the things that I was really struck by is how different a picture. We get of Central Asian history when we read in different kinds of sources, and that may be that may be obvious. But you know, a lot of studies are really rooted in one particular register. So, like for instance, whether that's colonial sources or whether it's a particular genre of um, of manuscripts, um, and specifically the 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 picture that the documentary record. So, like as in sort of practical documents produced by the Bukharan emirate. Uh, the picture that, that, that you get from uh, of what's going on is, is really quite different from the codified, you know, the, 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 the very um, deliberate manuscripts that the, the ulama are writing, all the ulama are writing the documents too. So it's not necessarily a difference in who's producing them. Um, but that got me inter- more interested in questions of, you know, what did it mean? So, you know, um, one thing that may- maybe I should have emphasized at the very beginning is one of the reasons that uh, the picture looks so different in Bukhara than, than in, other areas of Central Asia is that Bukhara was a, was, um, you know, the dynasty remained intact even after its defeat by Russia, which means that, um, you know, that from the local, from the ulama's perspective, you know, there, there's a lot more continuity, continuity across the colonial divide than there might have, than there would have been from the, the ulama's perspective, living in say Tashkent or somewhere like that, that was now d- d- being directly ruled by the Russian military uh, governor generalship. Um, and so you know, what does that mean uh, from the perspective of Bukhara? So, like, what what is you know, what are the advantages? Uh, what are the disadvantages? How does that? How does um, over time? How does Bukhara start to look more and more like a directly directly ruled part of Russian Central Asia? And which ways did it? Was it this op- actually afford opportunities to invest in things like madrasas? So, you know, one of the points I make in the book in, in the Polymaths of Islam is that madrasa production continues and even increases uh, during the colonial period. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in investigating that further, and especially as revealed through this uh, through the, the documents produced by that, that by that state. Um, and you know, really, this the, those documents uh, led me to um, a compa- you know the, an interest in, in doing this as a comparison with Hyderabad in, in South Asia. You know, similar, similarly, Muslim Persianate, uh, similarly indirectly ruled princely state in India, as a way of um, of having the 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 source base for both these two places helps shed light on one another um for this for the this book is obviously polymaths of islam is very much about central asia but i, I spent quite a bit of time um living and working in india as well uh um, digging through those archives for to shed light on bukhara so that um gave me a, a chance to to um start down this road of 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 comparing those two places
0: yeah and i think um you know unfortunately we don't have um enough comparative history being done in central asia so um it sounds like that book will um yeah well i'm certainly looking forward to it and and who knows hope you know once it's published and you've done all the research maybe we'll be able to have you back on the show to talk about
1: yeah one uh, of the i mean one of the things that i think is interesting about that topic is just that it's i, I consider that the project To be both comparison, comparative, and transregional. So, like, it's comparative Hmm. in the sort of um, in its in in its in as as a study of sovereignty. So, like, what does it what does it mean? What does indirect rule mean in these two contexts? It's comparative, but for some of the reasons that we discussed at some length in this interview, it's also transregional in terms of a study of Persianate cultures of documentation. Right. So, looking at the ways that. Uh, bureaucracies and chanceries were shaped by this common Persian cosmopolis that was that you know that was was common to both Hyderabad and
0: Bukhara. So, yeah. great. Well, thank you again, uh, James, for your time. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to uh, following your future research.
1: No, thank you, and thank you for I mean thank you for hosting this series. It's uh, it's a tremendous uh, service to the field.